and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is season 5, episode 12, Back by the Withering Sands. South and a bit to the east of Delhi, the modern capital of India, there's a scattering of hills. And at first they seem kind of random, but if you look at them a bit closer, you'll notice that they all have a kind of direction. They're pointing in the same way, south and east. And if you follow that direction, the hills disappear for a while, but pretty soon they pick up again as ridges of parallel lines. You might call them creases or folds in the earth, but... That's not quite quite the right way to put it, because they're not like folds of scrunched up paper or a collapsed car. They're not crisp and clear, they're, they're smoothed and weathered down. These hills are old. Even old for hills. They're older than the Himalayas even. They're some of the oldest hills in the world. And time has mellowed them a bit. The ridges run in parallel, and if you follow down that line, pointing onwards, you are led out towards the deserts of Rajasthan. If you carry on, the ridges fall down to the valley floor, collapsing into nothing every now and then, but then each time they rise up, each time a little bit higher, 650, 700, 800, 900, over a thousand foot they start to tower above us. And then more. A plateau stretches out between the ridges like a tent, high above the valley floor. By this time, we are firmly in Rajasthan. And the ridges of this mountain range, the Ara Valley mountain range, mark a divide in that land. On the west side of the mountains, rivers collect water from the mountainside. Water sort of slides down the forested slopes. There are some really big waterfalls here where the water slips into green pools. And from there the water passes on and irrigates a fertile land. We don't want to lean on it too heavily. This is a reasonably dry place. In a few parts there's nothing much more than scrubs. But the rains here fall enough to support farming. There's about a a metre of rain a year, perhaps, in a good year. And the rivers, they can sometimes flow both in summer and in winter. It's dry, but not too dry. But if you climb up the ridges from this greenish land, up the eastern slopes of the mountain, and out over onto the western side, everything is different. On the western slopes, sand blows up, clogging up the channels. The waterways that collect from here might flow a week, a day or two, only during monsoon, but not much more. They definitely don't flow all year. The trees are wiry, very few leaves. The grass is thin and brown. And looking down beyond, even that grass fades and passes imperceptibly into desert. This journey over the ridges from the green land to the desert, that was the journey that King Vatsaraja took. He had been raised in Ujjain, a city far to the west, 
where he'd been king, and he'd risen far from merely ruling Ujjain and the surrounding area. He had conquered large tracts of land. In fact, he'd beaten his major rival for North India. He'd beaten all of the major contenders. It seemed like nothing was left in his way, nothing big enough to stop him being paramount emperor of the north. The imperial city, Kanyakubja, the symbol of being an emperor, was more or less in his grasp. He only had to reach out and take it. So go the plans of mice and men. Things did not work out as planned as we heard in the last episode. An emperor from South India had crossed into the north on a mission of his own, and Vatsaraja had been utterly defeated at the very moment of his victory. He had been defeated so soundly that he was thrown back, thrown back to his homeland, and then thrown out of that, fleeing to the west, up and over these ridges, and down into the great Tar Desert on the other side. The Tar Desert was the land where kings had always fled when they had nowhere else to go, and now Vatsaraja was being forced to follow them. And there, Vatsaraja ruled for a while, having a string of towns and cities in the eastern fringe of the great desert. He's mentioned in a few inscriptions up and down these places where the sands meet the mountains. And this week, we take a, a bit of a break from all of the conquering kings and we hear what this kingdom of the desert was like. We hear the stories of some of the cities and the people who lived there. Ready? Let's go. As Vatsaraja stepped over the ridge and down into the desert, he was stepping into a land filled with history. You might think of the deserts of Rajasthan as a bit empty and, and isolated. In a sense they are, but it's not as if history has passed them by. Vatsaraja was a Pratihara king from the Pratihara line, and his forefathers, the very first Pratihara kings, had started here in the desert, and they'd built the city of Mandor on, on the desert's edge. Well, hadn't quite built it actually, It'd been there a little bit before they came, but they'd expanded it. Like the rest of this desert land, even Mandor had a history. It had been uh, in the possession of Nagas, and they left their mark on the city. Their mark is still there today. The river that runs to the south of the city was called the Nagadri, after the Nagas. The goddess who looked after the city was called Nagnechiji. And even the water tank for washing in was named after the Nagas. This was the city that Vatsaraja almost certainly took his court to when he fled after his defeat. And it was home of his forefathers of a sort. He seems to have set up his court there and started to run the remains of his empire. It must have been a hard, dry part sort of life when compared to his childhood in Ujjain. In Ujjain, you're right by a pretty decent river, the Shipra River. And in olden days, the river used to wind around the city into its moat, protecting it. But now, in this new capital in Mandor, 
Well, there's a river running to the south, but it's nothing like the river Ujjain. We now call it the Luni River, which means salty river or something like that. That's because its waters were being burnt up by the sun at such a rate that it left the water salty to taste. And that's when you could taste it, in the rainy season. But it didn't last because for much of the year, the sun burnt up the water faster than the rains could restore it and the river sunk below the ground. For quite a few centuries, this had kept this area pretty empty of at least large settlements. Take the Harappans, for example, the great prehistorical civilization of India. They had pretty sophisticated cities, and towards the end of the Harappan period, when the flowering civilization was starting to dim a little bit, they, they came in this direction. They had some cities on the other side of the desert, next to big rivers. As they passed through the desert, though, they don't seem to have stopped on the eastern fringe. It was just a bit too dry for them. That's not quite accurate, though, because the eastern part of the Tar Desert actually gets a little bit more rainfall than the western part. The problem for the Harappans was that the rivers of the east just didn't run all year round. And to run a big city, you needed a steady supply of water. So the Harappans passed on beyond and into Gujarat. By Vatsaraja's time, though, people had found ways to have a city even here when the river didn't run all year. What they did was they dug wells into the riverbed, raising water from the water table's highest point in the land. They used Persian wheels, a sort of water-lifting device to do so. And so... By Vatsaraja's time, there was a fair bit of civilization of life on the eastern fringes of the desert. Probably wasn't as populous as the other side of the mountains, but there were really quite a few people knocking around. There were plenty of nomadic groups and pastoralists and people living in fairly rural settings and smaller little groups. These were people whose histories are often too too ephemeral to catch hold of easily. And they were often in conflict with more settled groups in cities. These groups were huddled in their dvarna durgs, their forts protected by vast sweeps of empty desert. For example, up north there was a small city built on the bank of another river, one which flows even more rarely than the old salty river that Vatsaraja was living next to. The kings of that land had fought against the peoples of the desert, the nomadic pastoral groups. They wanted to bring the desert itself under their control. But over the generations, those city folk from up north had lost. Their kings were beaten back, out in fact of Maradesh, out of the desert land altogether, and off to Sindh. And that's a, a pattern that we don't really need to give names to because it's just so familiar. Down to the south of where Vatsaraja set up, there was another city called Jalore. It's in an area that actually seems to have been inhabited as far back as 130,000 years ago. We've found some Stone Age stuff there. In historical times, it had for quite a long time been a stop on the trade route. So we found coins from the Huns there. 
taken there by traders and exchanged for salt and metals mined from the rocky outcrops in that area. Nowadays, Jalor still exists and it still specialises in trading the products of the mountains. Today, it's sometimes known as the granite city of Rajasthan because of all the granite that gets shipped out of there. Shortly before the time of Vatsaraja, Jain monks had been going around the area building new temples. The temples usually had small cells in them. They were places for the monks to, to live and to study. These were the, uh, the Svetambara, the uh, white-clad monks, the sort of Jainism that's dominant in the region today. One of these monks was a man called Udyotana. And he was not just a monk, he was a novelist. Well, I suppose that a literature professor would nowadays tell you that the novel was invented in the modern era or some such. People say um, Don Quixote is the first novel. But, but even if he didn't write novels, Udyotana wrote stories. And he wrote them in Jalor, because he said so in the story. He even mentioned the king, Vatsaraja, as a jolly nice bloke. And the stories that Udyatana wrote mixed up a bunch of styles. There was comedy in there and dialogue. There was short story form and epic. And his stories also mixed the worldly and the spiritual. There are parts of the story about rich kings and, and fancy high-tooting princesses. But on the other hand, pretty much all of the stories came down to being proper. It came down, ultimately, to Dharma. And the one of these stories that's come down to us is the Kuvalaya Mala, written in 778 AD. This was a famous enough book in the medieval world to be copied by later works. For example, there's a book called The 54 Great Men by a guy called Sri Lanka, which is not at all what it appears. It's not about a history. It's not a biography of 54 great men. It's a fictional work. And it's nothing to do with Sri Lanka. There was just a guy called Sri Lanka. Anyway. Udyotana's book was pretty famous in his own time, much less famous now. And the really fabulous thing about it, at least for our purposes, is that it's got a bunch of incidental details Snippets of the by and by that tell us what life was like in Jalore at that time. A real treasure trove of information about what it was like to live in Vatsaraja's desert kingdom. And we're definitely going to go treasure hunting. Actually, wait. Before we get into all of that, let's talk about Udyotana's teacher. He was another novelist. His name was Haribhadra. There were an awful lot of people at this time called Haribhadra. A surprising number of them seem to have been writers too, to make it even more confusing. There are even a bunch of religious writers. There's a bunch of Buddhist guys called Haribhadra around this period. And there are some Jain writers too. There are even some Jain writers specialising in logic, which is the same thing that our Haribhadra specialised in. 
all of which is tremendously inconvenient. Fortunately enough, though, our Haribhadra, the teacher, was the earliest of the lot of them, and he's a little bit special. So he's easy enough to find if you want to look on the internet. Haribhadra not only looked at logic, he also wrote stories. I mean, he pretty much did everything involving writing. He did dramas and parodies and religious tracts and commentaries on religious tracts. He wrote in Sanskrit. He wrote in Prakrit. Haribhadra is supposed to have written 1,400 works, which might be a little bit implausible, but sources from around his time actually list the titles of 88 of his works. And a a whopping 28 of those have come down to us in some form or other. Haribhadra then, a really major figure in Jain literature, he's credited with having made Sanskrit the language of Jainism. In fact, his stories are so prominent that we've already dipped into them without referring to him properly. There was an episode a while back on Southeast Asia, for example, that borrowed details from one of his books. The book was called The Samari Chakaha. Well, he didn't call it that, but if you want to look it up, that's the name to use. And it was a pretty great tale. Here's the basic structure. There are two people who are intertwined. Every time they are reborn... They are connected to one another in different relationships. So in one birth, there'll be husband and wife. In another, there'll be father and son. And one of these people is evil and the other one is good. And in each life, the evil one always torments the good one and ultimately kills them. It's a little bit like that modern novel by David Mitchell called The Cloud Atlas, if you've read that. Only this is Indian and much older and much, much more Jen. And I don't expect Tom Hanks will be doing the movie adaptation anytime soon. But he should, because it's an absolute stunner. Take the story after the one about Southeast Asia. It goes something like this. The king had two sons. One of them was the crown prince he was set up to inherit, and the other was sent off to Ujjain to be a sort of secondary prince. This caused a bit of a scuffle, and it ended with the crown prince renouncing the world, going off to the wilderness to join a small community of monks. And there he lived for a while, happy with his new life, learning to be a Jain monk. But by and by, some monks came to him from Ujjain, and he asked them, hey, how's life back in the old city? And they said, It's splendid, nothing to complain about, Um, except um, the the king's sons, the king who's now ruling, now that you're not around. The king's sons, they're not particularly nice to us. They kind of bully us a lot and push us around, and the king's chamberlain's in on it too. They make life tough for the monks. Well, the prince turned monk thought about it for a while, and then decided that he wanted to go off to Ujjain to see what was going on for himself. So he left and he joined the the group of monks in Ujjain. He had a connection with the group of monks there. Their head, their most senior figure, had been pupil of the same monk as the prince had been. 
And that sort of spiritual family connection, having the same teacher or the same line of teachers, was very important at the time. In fact, quite, quite a lot of these Jain texts spent a lot of time talking about this. Anyway, the prince-turned-monk said, okay, I want to go out and go begging for alms. And the others said, no, 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 you, you don't want to do that in a Jain. It just causes trouble. Just stay in the monastery. Oh, okay, sure, said the prince-turned-monk. And he promptly stepped out of the monastery and went on his own anyway. A young lad came with him. And as he was going round our begging for arms, the young lad pointed out to a house and said, that house definitely don't go and ask arms from. It was a, a big house, a great splendid looking thing. That house, said the young boy, is called the house of adversity. Don't go and get arms from there. Don't knock on the door. Don't step inside. That one, said the prince turned monk. Oh, okay. And he walked straight up to the house and straight in the door. And when he was in the door, he started yelling out his blessings, effectively asking for alms from the occupants. Some servants, looking startled, rushed up to him, trying to silence him, trying to push him out before there was a scene. But he refused to listen to them. He pretended to be deaf. Instead, he yelled out his religious blessings all the louder. Pretty soon, out came four young lads, dressed finely, princes by the look of them. And on their faces, they wore wicked grins. These were guys looking for some fun. They surrounded the monk and they started to mock him. They demanded that he dance for them. He said, I will dance for you. But how can I dance without music? I need someone to play the instruments for me. We'll play the instruments for you. We'll play them, yelled out the four boisterous boys. They got the instruments and they started playing. But they wouldn't play a proper rhythm. They played offbeat in stutters and starts, trying to trip up the monk on his own feet. He couldn't dance to this he seemingly got angry with them. He shouted at them. And at this, they got angry. How dare this monk shout at us? And they jumped on him, meaning to beat him to a pulp. But the monk launched a series of lightning blows and they fell to the floor, limbs dislocated and unconscious. The monk dusted himself off. He left the house and he found a place to quietly study and think and do all those monkish things. When the servants came out of hiding, they went up to the boys, but they couldn't summon them. They couldn't wake them up. The king was summoned and he came and saw the boys and he was horrified. It was a Jain monk, the servant said. So the king stormed into the Jain community of a Jain, demanding to know what had happened. It couldn't have been us said the Jains there, we know not to ask for arms from that house. But then the servants recognised in the corner a monk who looked just like the one who had turned up at the house earlier that day. And the king recognised him too, recognised him as his kinsman. He was taken to the house. And 
by, by manipulating the bodies of the four princes, the mouths, he loosened them up so that they were able to talk, although their limbs were still dislocated, they were unable to move. All of them swore blind that they would never again bully any other monk. That wasn't enough. He made them agree to become monks themselves. And only then did he loosen their limbs and set them free. Harry Badra, the author of that tale, had some stories of his own life to tell too. He had been raised a Brahmin in Rajasthan, in fact, in Chittor, which was on the other side of that mountain range, the greener side where the rivers run firmer and the rain came surer. Harry Badra's father had been a family priest of the king there. So Harry Badra had been raised to be very learned in the scriptures. Probably he was expected to succeed his father as the family priest of the king. But his education was just a little bit too thorough, or, or maybe it was too much focus on the books and too little focus on character. Because Harry Badra started to become arrogant, started to push his intellectual weight around. You might know the sort of person, boasting, I know all this stuff, you guys are idiots. Um, anyone who can give me something that I can't understand, well, fine, I'll agree to become their pupil. He would go around town bragging in this way and beating people in debate. One day, along came a Jain nun. Her name was Yakini. And she said to him the following line. Chakidagum haripangum chakkana kesvo chakki. Kesvachki kesav duchki kesav chakki. Harry Madra heard the line and he tried to make sense of it, but he couldn't. Well, be honest, can you? I certainly can't, which is why I'm not going to be able to translate it for you. In any case, he said, I can't understand it. The nun Yakani said, well, to understand it, you're going to have to understand all of Jainism. So he agreed to become her pupil. He became a Jain. Now that's a, a later story. That's not actually something that the man tells us about himself, but it might explain why he calls himself Son of Yakani in many of his works. One of his nicknames. He's got another nickname too. The nickname Vihara Anka, marked by separation is how I might translate it. And that other nickname has another story behind it, a story about the time after he became a Jain monk. He had two nephews, and they were Jains too, after him. But they wanted to understand Buddhism, so they disguised themselves as Buddhists, however you do that, I'm not quite sure, and they went off to the local Buddhist monastery to learn about Buddhism firsthand. But at the monastery, the impostors were uncovered. They were beaten and killed. And Haribhadra was furious. He wanted revenge. He went to the local Buddhist monastery where they had died and he challenged them. Look, we'll have a duel of the minds, a debate, and whoever loses the debate will be thrown into a vat of boiling oil. Well, what about it? Are you too cowardly? The Buddhists decided to agree to the debate. Haribhadra won the debate 
and the Buddhists were thrown into a vat of boiling oil. But now Haribhadra had killed someone, a lot of bad karma that he needed to expunge. He went off to do some extreme austerities. And then he wrote a book on the evils of anger and hatred and how they can never lead to good. And ever afterwards, he called himself Marked by Separation. These two authors from Rajasthan tell us a lot more than merely the stories they tell directly. Partly, there's the mere fact that we've got two Jain monks writing romance novels. That tells us about religion in the region and how it was changing. More on that later. But also, these authors tell us details about life in the desert kingdom. The incidental features in their stories give it away. And from them, a picture of life in the Tar Desert emerges. And it comes across not as an isolated place, populated by primitive peoples as yet untouched by civilization. Instead, people are passing through this area from all over. There's a certain cosmopolitanness to this desert. Trade routes run through here, perhaps connected up to the ports and there to international uh, destinations. But actually, there are a lot of people from around North India. And we know that this isn't just a fantasy because our two authors are well acquainted with different accents, different idioms of speech. We know that merchants from Pataliputra passed through. We know that merchants from Sindh, currently ruled by the Umayyads, also came through here, and others from Andhra and, and Maharashtra. And merchants like this would meet up in groups. This wasn't an isolated place then, and it also wasn't a place of barbarians. The city folk were sophisticated, sophisticated in the pejorative sense too. Take, for example, makeup. They wore in this region coal for the eyes, as people do today. They wore camphor, driven down into, into powder, which must have smelt extremely strong. Comfort nowadays, if, if you don't know about it, is mostly used to keep cockroaches away. You get these little beads of it and you, you whack it into the bathroom drains. And to my nose, at least, it stinks. I really don't like it. But to ancient Indians and to Indians in the medieval period, it must have been a nice smell because people smoked comfort to get that smell into the food and they, they obviously wore it as perfumes. Women wore glass bangles. And rich women coloured their skin or coloured themselves with saffron. Poor women used turmeric instead. So there was an element of refinement to the prosaic everyday life here. Family relations were presumably the same mix of confusion and love that they are everywhere. Polygamy, though, was widely practised. Giving birth to a boy led to escape from hell. Although giving birth to a girl was still a thing which was kind of okay. Boys in the upper castes were taken away to a teacher's house to be taught. Sometime around their eighth birthday, the exact date would be fixed by astrologers. 
and boys there would learn pretty much the same stuff that people did in more populated parts of India: mathematics and philosophy and theology, grammar and and the other seventy-two arts. And these boys came from a mixture of backgrounds, although most of them presumably would have been elite. Harry Badra was a Brahmin boy. He seems to have gone through a rig- rigorous education like this, and and so did his pupil Udiyatana, who was a, a boy from the Kshatriya caste. Lower caste individuals and girls would presumably not be taken on by a teacher at all. Caste restrictions. Speaking of those, well, they'd been growing stricter since Gupta times in most parts of India. They were usually a little bit looser and weaker in ways in places uh, away from the big cities, and that seems to have been true here. So we've got a story of a Shudra guy, the guy from the lowest caste, becoming really quite rich and passing on his wealth to his children, and and then being welcomed in by merchant communities who are dominated by Vaishyas, a, a caste that's higher up the the hierarchy. Mind you, the fact that this story appears in a novel doesn't mean it was common. It might even mean the exact opposite. I mean, there's no point writing about everyday life in a romance novel. There were a group, though, in the Tar Desert, who were certainly considered bad outsiders. Those groups of nomads and and pastoralists. They were considered as somewhere between just downright odd and dangerous, and in the novels they come across as brutal savages sometimes, worshiping with human sacrifice, covered in blood. The government was there too. There was the king, Vatsaraja, at the top, of course, and he was kind to friends and victorious to enemies, as we heard last week. Beneath him was a prime minister. The prime minister was a hereditary post, and beneath him was an advisory council. Well, okay, the stories from a, a novel, a work of fiction. We're not here talking about Vatsaraja's personal advisory council, but presumably the novel picks up from real life here. But what the novels tell us most about is what their authors are focused on: religion. There was a bit of Buddhism around in the area at this time. There are a flurry of Buddhist caves in one of the towns nearby, but the caves of the other sects are more widely scattered, perhaps, and probably Buddhism was a pretty minority religion. Jainism was there, of course. The mere fact that both these authors were Jain monks tells us something. Jainism was coming into the area. There were a, a line of Jain thinkers teaching others, each one teaching the next one, a sort of a family tree of monks. And they were coming into the area from the north and, and, and from the west, and they were building temples as they passed across the land. There started to be a significant Jain population in the area. It's still there today, of course. There's a very influential one percent of the Rajasthani population today who are Jain. Which doesn't sound like much, but there are still more in that state than there are almost anywhere else in the world. Probably the vast majority of people, though, followed the Brahminical sects: worship of Vishnu, worship of Shiva, or Shakti worship, worship of Mother, God- Mother Goddess. And the kings, the Pratihara kings like Vatsaraja, followed their people in this. 
each king in turn following their own god or goddess from one of the Brahminical sects. So King Vatsaraja, for example, was a devotee of Shiva. And the kings and society in general seems to have been pretty free and easy when it came to religion. The kings followed a standard pattern when it came to kings. They supported not only their own sect, but other sects too, including probably Jainism. And the everyday people followed suit in their own way. Even our authors, despite the fact that they're Jain monks, recognize the Brahminical gods in a sense. I mean, they're Jains, they don't believe in gods in the theistic sense at all, but they, they found ways to find common ground with the people that they lived alongside. And within the Brahminical sects, there's more evidence of common ground being sought. So, for example, we can find plenty of Harihara statues. These are uh, two figures in one. On the left side, you've got Vishnu's garlands and, and Vishnu's hand holding his discus. And on the right side of exactly the same image, you've got Shiva's matted locks and his hand holding his trident. Vishnu and Shiva in one image. Two sects combined in one object of worship. And there were other statues that were built to combine the sects. For example, you get statues with Vishnu on one side and Shakti on the other. Now, these are not unique to the region, but their presence does indicate a certain sort of desire to find common ground. And, as usual, those folk out in the desert were seen in a different light. A story in, in one of the novels describes a shrine out there. There was a courtyard that was shaded by an old, rotten, twisted tree. Its roots worm-eaten. Its branches hung with horns and, and blood dripped down from them from the heads of sheep and buffalo that were hung alongside. And beyond that, there was the shrine itself, with human skeletons hung on the wall. And above it, a flag of flayed leopard skin swaying in the wind. Gruesome stuff. Every week we read something from the original sources. This week, I don't actually have that much choice about what we want to read because of what I said in the last episode. Last episode, we read an inscription from Puja, who's a later Pratihara king. And he was telling the story of his family up until Vatsaraja. And in that episode, pretty much promised to tell the rest of the story and read out the rest of the inscription. So that's what I'm going to do. But, spoiler alert, as with all ancient inscriptions, reading this one is going to ruin the plot of the next few episodes. Although, inscriptions have been known to conveniently leave out defeats and important twists and turns. I'll leave it to you to judge whether you want to listen. Anyway, the inscription goes like this. The primeval man was born again to him, Vatsaraja, and being far-famed and possessed of elephant hosts, was called Nagabhatta. This is Nagabhatta II. 
the kings of Andhra, Sindhu, Virdaba, and Kalinga succumb to his youthful energy as moths are due unto fire. Who, desirous of the great growth of virtuous actions, acts enjoined in the Vedas, performed a series of religious ceremonies according to the custom of the Kshatriya families. And after having defeated Chakriyayudha, he was ruling in Kanyakubja, whose lowly demeanour was manifest from his dependence on others, he became eminent, although he was humble through modesty. Having vanquished his enemy, the lord of Vanga, Dharmapala, who appeared like a mass of dark dense cloud in consequence of the crowd of mighty elephants, horses and chariots, Nagabhata, who alone gladdens the heart of the three worlds, revealed himself, even as the sun, the sole source of manifestation of the three worlds, reveals himself by vanquishing dense and terrible darkness. Of him, whose mode of life was beneficial to all mankind, the incomprehensible royal qualities became manifest in the world, even from boyhood, by his forcible seizure of the hill forts of the kings of Anarata, Malwa, Kirata, Turaksha, Vatsa and Matsva. And I think that's where we should cut off the inscription before we ruin the whole story. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you did, please consider donating to my wife's charity. That's the Snehill Situ Patrick Memorial Fund. There are details for that on the website. There's a link to the website in the description. Many apologies to all of who've written in over the last couple of months, and I just haven't been keeping up to date with responding to emails. I'll get to it soon. Until next time, have a great week. Take care.